Well, I do. <laughs> Is that an amen there? I appreciate that. I like those, those amens. Well, the title this morning for our seminar is Fallen Masterpiece, Man as the Image of God. And as I mentioned in my seminar from last week, this is sort of a part two from last Sunday, which I entitled, What is Man? How Six-Day Creation and a Historical Adam are Foundational to Our Identity. And in case there are those who weren't with us in the Family Center last week, I'll review a little bit of my rationale or, or my approach for these two seminars. And I gave the first message that title, What is Man? And I wanted to make uh, this issue a focus for my contribution to Sundays in July this year because if I had to identify just what is wrong with the world today, what's wrong with the thinking of of our contemporary culture, in my opinion, it boils down to a fundamentally anti biblical doctrine of man. Of all the issues that plague our contemporary society, I think that nearly all of them are rooted in a view of humanity that is fundamentally false. All of our contemporary culture's obsession with the concept of identity and what one identifies as and being true to our authentic self and living my truth, which apparently means giving vent to every one of your basest desires and impulses, all of that is the result of having absolutely no sense of who or what we are as human beings. In systematic theology, we call the doctrine of man the study of anthropology. So, who is man? What is man? Why are we here? Where do we come from? What has gone wrong with the world? What has gone wrong with my own heart? Why am I not the way that I want to be? What does it mean to be human as opposed to an animal or a plant? How can I know what is right and wrong? Is there an absolute objective standard for good and evil according to which I must order my life? Or is morality subjective and relative? These are the questions that a biblical anthropology answers. And as I mentioned last week, these are the questions that our corrupt secular society answers as well and does its darndest to catechize its disciples with far greater rigor than we insist on as we catechize our children in the scriptures and in sound theology. And so there is a battle being waged, and it is the battle for your mind and for your children's minds, a battle for the way that you think and process the world. It is a war of worldviews. And it is, in fact, our culture's refusal to heed the Bible's answers to these questions that has the world in the chaos that it's in. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, the transgender movement, abortion, racism, all of those issues are downstream of an unbiblical anthropology, an unbiblical view of the nature of man. And this horrible anthropology seems to stem from a sort of schizophrenic, internally inconsistent view of man. Martin Lloyd-Jones captured this inconsistency in an interview he gave in 1971. He said, the contemporary conception of man, on the one hand, doesn't make enough of man, 
and on the other makes too much of him. We don't make enough of man because we consider him to be a mere animal, not really distinct from other creatures. Abortion, euthanasia. We decide that man is an animal, and so when he's deemed to be not useful or too much of an inconvenience, he can be discarded, killed like he's no better than an animal. We don't make enough of man because we don't see him as an image bearer of Almighty God. We don't see the inherent dignity and value that man has, and so we treat him like an animal. And yet the scriptures say that man is the pinnacle of God's creation, uniquely um, created in his image to represent his glory to the world whose life is valuable because of the image of the creator of that life. And so on the one hand, we don't make enough of man. But on the other hand, as Lloyd-Jones said, we make too much of man. We flatter ourselves into suggesting that man is basically good, a morally upright being who just needs to live out his authentic inner self. There are these axiomatic catchphrases, almost catechetical phrases from our culture. You know, I'm okay, you're okay. Well, you do you. Uh, Become a better you. Find your truth and be true to your truth and live your truth. And only God can judge me, which, of course, is insane because that should bring somebody no comfort whatsoever. But, you know, I mean, you, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me, right? Uh, Well, you need to love yourself. Josiah even mentioned it last hour. Don't forget self-care. And and then, of course, accept yourself for who you are, right? Those are all incredibly optimistic views of who man is. Well, sure, nobody's perfect. We all make make mistakes, but God understands that. And if man even stands in need of reconciliation to God... Certainly, he has the means within himself to effect that reconciliation. That's our culture's view of man, and that is precisely not what the Bible says. The Bible says that man has ruined himself by rebellion against his creator and that he will suffer eternal punishment unless something can be done to pay for his sins and restore his relationship to God. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley, in their Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2, say that man is no conglomeration of blind accidents, but a fallen masterpiece of God. And that's where I derive the title for, for the seminar, because I think that really captures it well. Man is a masterpiece. He is a masterpiece because he is made in the image of God and therefore has inherent dignity. His life is worthy to be protected because it stands in the closest possible relation, because it is the closest reflection of the life and character of his creator. See, you can kill the animals and eat them, Genesis 9.3, but you can't kill a man without being liable to capital punishment, Genesis 9.6. And so man is a masterpiece, but he is a fallen masterpiece. He, is, he has not remained in that very good state in which God has created him. He has not lost the image of God, as we'll see, but he has marred it. Something has gone terribly wrong with man so that the altogether optimistic views of man and his moral goodness are a wild caricature of reality. 
Man is lost. Man is ba- man is totally beholden to the sovereign great remedy to his hopeless predicament. And last week we discussed the origin of man as the direct creation of God. The very first most fundamental thing to say about man is that he is a creature. It's the first thing you see in Genesis 1:26 then God said, "Let us make man." And so the first thing we must say about man is that he is made, that he is not God, that he is the creature of the almighty triune creator God. And that means that we do not create our own identity, but that we receive our identity from our creator. And we made the observation that if the culture's goal is ultimately to free man from his accountability to his creator and the totalizing claims of the law of God so that he can be left alone to sin in peace, well, then you start at the very root. You seek to undermine the notion that man is a creature at all, and you say that he is the product of evolutionary processes. And so we defended six-day creation last week. We turn today to discuss what is perhaps the next most fundamental concept concerning the doctrine of man, namely that man is created as the image of God. Because the second thing that shows up in Genesis 1.26, right after the term man is used for the first time in Scripture, is that man is the image of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Beaky and Smalley offer a helpful summary comment that I think serves as a good introduction to the doctrine of the image of God, and that is, the value of all things lies in their manifestation of the glory of God. And God has chosen to concentrate his revealed glory in the human race. Whatever glory or dignity there is in the human race, it is derived glory and dignity. And it is derived from the glory and dignity of God whose image man is. God multiplies and magnifies his own glory by creating images of himself, pictures of his beauty and glory and righteousness in the crown and apex of his creation. And so it is difficult to overestimate the importance of the doctrine of the image of God or the imago dei, the Latin phrases, which is why I use the term imago there. It's not a typo. Um, That human beings are created in God's image stands as a defining notion for understanding who we are fundamentally, where we've come from, what our purpose is, to whom we are accountable and how we are to function in our various relationships. And Beaky and Smalley say that the doctrine of the image is crucial to know a man's nature, identity, function, and relationship to God, his fellow men, and the other creatures. And you already see there a bit of foreshadowing that the image of God has profound implications for how man relates to God, who is above him, how he relates to other people who are on a level with him, and how he relates to the other creatures who are beneath him. Did I do that right? There we are. Yep, there we go. 
James Beck and Bruce Demarest, in their book, The Human Person, write that the implications of human persons created in the image of God are immense for theology, psychology, ministry, and Christian living. Ramifications of the imago embrace issues of human dignity and value, personal and social ethics, relations between the sexes, the solidarity of the human family, and racial justice. And I ask you, do any of those topics sound relevant right now? I said it last week, but anthropology is the issue of our day. The biblical doctrine of man is precisely what is under assault by contemporary secularism. And an unbiblical doctrine of God, a, a virtual removal of God from their worldview altogether, and or a refashioning of God according to man's own tastes and emotions, that false doctrine of God has resulted in a false doctrine of man. Man is the image of God, and so when you have an aberrant, erroneous view of God, you're going to have a significantly distorted, fallacious view of man who is God's image. And that is what we have got. We've got people protesting to protect eagle eggs, while at the same time protesting for the right to kill children up to, and in some places, even after birth. Protect the eagles, kill the babies. That is an image problem. That's an image of God problem. We've got people fighting for what they call racial justice, while at the same time insisting that peoples of different colors are actually separate races and that human beings are basically evolved animals. What is justice if we're just a pack of animals? The, the only ground for justice of any, in any kind uh, in society is the fact that human beings are image bearers of Almighty God. And so there are, are, therefore are owed to be treated in a certain way. You take that away, and there really is no basis aside from my own preference, which is the true biblical worldview written in the conscience trying to come out, but being stuffed down, suppressed in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says. And so, I say, as I said, it's difficult to overstate the importance of the doctrine of the image of God. As Christians, you need to understand who man is, who you are in relation to your creator and to your fellow man. If you don't, you will not be equipped to witness to the truth of Christ and scripture in this present age. This is where the battle is currently raging, and we need to be equipped to wage the warfare of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So let's get to it then. I'll begin by noting some of the key biblical passages on the image of God. We've already read Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You also have Genesis 5, 1, which says, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 9, 6 says, God says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he made man. You move over to the New Testament and you see in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, Paul says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. It's worth commenting that Paul in the New Testament regards man presently to be the image of God. And then James 3, 9, with it, that is with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. 
Also significant that James regards man to presently be the likeness of God and for that fact to be the ground of the proper treatment of one another. Well, having looked at a sampling of significant passages in both Testaments, let's look at the biblical terms themselves. What is an image? Well, the Hebrew term is tselem, and it most often refers to a carved image, an artistic depiction, and especially in the case of idols, uh, in which carved statues or painted images represent false deities. You see it in Numbers 33, 52, which says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish their high places. In 2 Kings eleven eighteen, with the parallel in 2 Chronicles 23, 17, it says, All the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images. They broke in pieces thoroughly. In the New Testament, the term for image is akon, and while it shows up, like where we get the term icon from, and it, where it shows up in a number of passages to refer to idols in this way. Romans one twenty three functions as a good exemplar. Paul writes that man exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And do note there that the term form is a cognate of the Greek translation of the Hebrew term for likeness. And so Paul is pulling from the language of Genesis 1 and saying, God created man in his own image and likeness, and man has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible creator for the image and likeness of the corruptible creature. This is idolatry. I didn't put Genesis 1 there. So you see how... Image, acone in the Septuagint, as well as likeness, homoema in the Septuagint, shows up in Paul's New Testament Greek uh, citation in Romans 1, or allusion in Romans 1. So that's image. The term likeness in the Hebrew is demuth, and it speaks of a model, a shape, a likeness, or a pattern. It's also used in some passages just to refer to being like something else. And so 2 Kings 6.10, Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern of the altar and its model. So likeness here refers to pattern, the blueprint for building the altar. 2 Chronicles 4.3, now figures like oxen were under the altar and all around it, 10 cubits entirely encircling the sea. So these are figures, likenesses of the oxen, the form of oxen. Psalm 58.4, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear. Here's the term, here the term is used just like our word like. It's just like something. And then Ezekiel 1.28, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. In the New Testament, we have the term likeness translated as homoiesis in James 3.9, which we read before, men who have been made in the likeness of God. And then there's the cognate homoioma, which we saw translated as form in Romans 1.23. It's also translated as likeness in Romans 5.14. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And then Revelation 9, 7, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. 
And then you have the terms occurring together, image and likeness in, a, in the same passage. Obviously, we've seen that in the first one, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Shows up again in 5.3, Adam fathered Seth in his own likeness according to his image. In Ezekiel 23, 14, and 15, it says, So she increased her harlotries, and she saw men portrayed on the wall images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with belts on their loins, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers, like the Babylonians in Chaldea, the land of their birth. The ESV there has a likeness of the Babylonians. And what's interesting here is the seeming interchangeability of the terms. Images of the Chaldeans looking like the Babylonians in Chaldea. The, two, the use of the two distinct terms are nevertheless referring to the very same referent. And we see the same in Romans one twenty three: an image in the form of corruptible man. Again, not referring to two different concepts, but referring to the very same referent. Now, there's a bit of nuance to each term, as we've seen, but Ezekiel 23 and Romans 1, along with comparing Genesis 1.26, where God is said to make man in our image, and Genesis 5.1, which says God made him in the likeness of God, all of those examples of the terms being, are, 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 are examples of the terms being used almost interchangeably, as Anthony Hokema puts it. Uh, this means that the terms are virtually synonymous. It's not that image refers to one thing while likeness refers to another, but as Beaky and Smalley say, that the two terms appear to explain each other. Louis Burkhoff says the words image and likeness are used synonymously and interchangeably and therefore do not refer to two different things. In Genesis 1.26, both words are used, but in the 27th verse, only the first. This is evidently considered sufficient to express the whole idea. And so image and likeness are not to be thought of having entirely discrete semantic values, as if image referred to something constitutional with man, while likeness only refers to morality. They are slightly different nuances which express the same notion of representation and similarity. And that is how I would summarize all of the biblical data that I've just worked through with you. Hokema puts it well when he says, the two words together, image and likeness, tell us that, um, that man is a representation of God who is like God in certain respects. Just as a carved image was a representation of an animal, a person, or a pagan deity, image refers to a copy that represents the thing it is patterned after. Representation is a key feature. In biblical doctrine, we read, in the ancient world, a king or a ruler would place an image or idol of himself in his realm to symbolize his sovereignty there. When others saw the image, they knew who had control. Likewise, God's image bearers represent God in the world. And likeness was simply a pattern after an original, something like the original but not identical to it. Just as in Genesis 5.3, Seth was like Adam in that he was a human being from his loins, but not identical to Adam. And so man is not identical to God as in pantheism, nor even a part of God as in panentheism, 
We do not partake in God's incommunicable attributes. God alone is eternal, self-existent, and so on, while man is temporal and finite, dependent upon God for his existence. So man's creation in the image of God does not mean that we, we, his creatures, are so much like our creator as to be gods in some sense. Instead, being created in the image of God means that we are like God in very important ways and that we represent God in the world in a way that is unique among the other creatures. In fact, it's best to say not that man has the image of God somewhere dwelling in him, but that man is the image of God on earth, representing God to the world. Men and women are designed by God to make God's character visible, living in a way that tells the truth about God to the rest of creation. Beaky and Smalley say, the Lord designed human beings to be limited, visible, earthly creatures that resembled God for his glory. Now, Scripture never explicitly defines in what specific ways and to what exact extent man is like God. There's no verse that says, okay, and here's what we mean when we say image and likeness. Carl F.H. Henry wrote, the Bible does not define for us the precise content of the original imago. And so therefore, there has been some debate over exactly what it means to, for man to be the image of God. But before we will look at those different views, let's make some observations from the texts that we've considered. Number one, and we've mentioned this several times already, representation. Representation. If man's being the image of God means that we represent him in some way, the manner in which we represent him must at least include the notion that we share some of his attributes in a finite way. Part of what it means to be God's image is that we show forth his communicable attributes. The Dutch Reformed theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel, in his masterful four-volume work, The Christian's Reasonable Service, says the divine image consists in a faint resemblance to the communicable attributes of God. And so Beaky and Smalley explain, we expect the image of God to be analogous in a finite way to the infinite power, authority, wisdom, and goodness that God manifested in created, creating the world. If God created in power, we expect that those he created in his image would reflect a degree of that power and authority, which, of course, man does in being tasked with exercising dominion in ruling and subduing the earth. If he created in wisdom, we expect that his image bearers would reflect that in some way and our intelligence and our capacity for communication it testifies to that. Further still, the, the events of Genesis 1 are not caused by an impersonal force, but a personal creator. And so it's right to expect his image bearers to be persons in a way that could not be predicated of the rest of the animate creatures. Since God created by his word, we would expect that his image bearers would resemble his communicative nature, even in a way that surpasses the powers of communication for the rest of creation. Animals communicate, but man's linguistic powers are unique in his reflection of the God whose image man bears. He communicates with God and about God to one another in ways that far surpass the animals. And so man represents God in part by reflecting certain of his communicable attributes to the world. Number two, reverence. 
And by reverence, I mean that man's being the image of God reflects the worship of God. Just as sinful men make idols, images of their gods that they might worship a visual expression of those idols, so also the true God makes images of himself to multiply the worship of himself. When God's image bearers rebel and worship idols, rather than reflecting the God in whose image they were made, they begin to reflect their idols. G.K. Beale has that great study, You Become What You Worship. Uh, John Piper talks about how we, what we behold is what we become. Uh, you, he, Beale says, you resemble what you revere, whether for your ruin or restoration. And in a sense, we can say we are also to revere what we were made to resemble. God's character is reflected in a finite and imperfect way in man, but in such a way that we may see the faint reflection of his character, and without worshiping the pictures, we may worship him for how he's revealed himself in his image bearers. Number three, relationship. In the text in which God declares that he has made man in his image, he he reveals himself in personal plurality. Let us make man in our image. And I do think that that is a veiled reference to the plurality of persons in the Godhead, which we later learn to be triunity. There is both unity and diversity in the very life of God himself. One essence subsisting in three co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial persons. And so relationship runs to the very essence of the Godhead. And that unity and diversity, that relational interaction, is reflected in the nature of man as God's image. And you see that in a number of ways. Immediately after stating that God made man in his own image, he clarifies, male and female, he created them. So right there, we see unity and diversity. God created man, singular, in his own image. Male and female, he created them, plural. Males and females are united in their humanity, but distinct in their different genders, of which there are only two. Let's just say that so we don't be mistaken. And the fact that the first male and the first female were soon to be brought together in marriage, who were then immediately tasked with being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, means that the the family is the fundamental institution of human relationships, that family reflects the relational aspect of the image of God. And this then broadens out as men and women are fruitful and multiply, and as they fill the earth, societies come into existence. The relationships between image bearers, even across familial lines, cultures are built, industry is developed, agriculture, Uh, men and women figure things out and build cities in which their diverse cultures glorify God in their variety, but in which their unity as image bearers glorify God in their solidarity. And certainly the notion of sonship bespeaks what it means to be the image of God in relationship. Luke 3.38 calls Adam the son of God. And Adam is made in the image and likeness of God. 
And in the same way, in Genesis 5, 1 to 3, Adam's son, Seth, is said to be fathered in the likeness of Adam according to his image. So there's this great interconnection between sonship and image bearing. And so the fact that we were created in God's image speaks to the relationship that human beings carry on with our children. A son is like his father. That speaks of God's attributes. A son should honor his father. That speaks of the reverence or the worship that we just spoke about. A son often shares his father's authority as his representative. That speaks of the dominion overtones that we'll get to in a moment. And the son relates to his father in fellowship and in communion. We might summarize image as relationship by noting that the image bears on man's relationship to God. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Image bears on man's relationship to his fellow man. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, treating one another with the dignity that accords to image bearers of God. And image bears on, number three, man's relationship to the inanimate creation. Man is to rule over the creation. He is to cultivate and steward the resources of the environment in such a way that glorifies God. And that leads nicely to number four, rule, or we might say reign. Immediately following the decree that God would make man in his image, he says, Genesis 1.26, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and so on. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves over the earth. You see, man is God's representative in a particular way. He will image God's authority by reigning over creation as a vice-regent, as if in the place of God himself. Man's job is to make the invisible king visible by his rule over creation according to the dictates of the king. And so Adam reigns in some sense as the image of God when he names all of the animals, Genesis 2.19. We read of the kingdom implications of man's rule as vice-regent in Psalm 8, 4 to 8. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. And so a key part of the image is ruling and reigning the creation in righteousness. Number five, then, is what we could say rectitude, which is to say that there is a moral aspect to the image of God. Scripture says that God made man very good, Genesis 1.31. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man upright, This means that Adam and Eve were not morally neutral creatures. They were created in what the Reformed tradition has called original righteousness. But in what does this original righteousness consist? Well, the New Testament teaches that after man's fall into sin, the believer in Christ is being progressively renewed into the image of God. Colossians 3.10 says the believer has put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
So the idea is that in progressive sanctification, we are renewed into the image of God, returning to a condition that we are no longer in. Similarly, Ephesians 5, uh, 4, 23 and 24 says that we are to be renewed in the, in the spirit of our mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God, literally according to God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so here again, we are being renewed into the likeness of God. And whereas Colossians 3.10 speaks of a true knowledge, Ephesians 4.24 speaks of righteousness and holiness. And so we conclude that the original condition to which believers are now being renewed consists in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so we see that this is the moral aspect of the image of God. Charles Hodge says, that image did not consist merely in man's rational nature, nor in his immortality, nor in his dominion, but especially in that righteousness and holiness, that rectitude in all his principles, which are inseparable from the possession of the truth or true knowledge of God. But we know that this rectitude is not all there is to the image of God, because this moral aspect was lost in the fall and is regained in Christ alone. True knowledge, holiness, righteousness, do not that does not describe man in his current fallen state. Far from true knowledge, Scripture speaks of man as one who walks in the futility of their mind, Ephesians 4.17, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Ephesians 4.18. Romans 1.21 says man became futile in his speculations. Romans 1.22 says professing to be wise, they became fools. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that spiritual things are foolishness to man in his fallen state, and he cannot understand them. Rather than righteousness, Romans 3 testifies that there is none righteous, not even one. Rather than a holiness, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And so this moral aspect of the image was lost in the fall. But scripture is very clear that the image of God in man is not entirely vanquished by the fall. And that means there is more to the image than the moral aspect. And that leads us to number six, the image is remaining remaining. The image of God in fallen man is marred, but it is not lost. It is distorted, but it is not entirely destroyed. How do we see that? Well, after the fall and even after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God repeats the cultural mandate that he gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats that to Noah in Genesis 9 verse 1. And then in addition to that, now in a world that labors under the curse of sin, God institutes the law of capital punishment. Genesis 9, 6 says again, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now in 9, 3, God gives every living beast to man for food, which means man may shed the blood of animals for food, and not be subject to any punishment. But to shed man's blood, that is not allowed. Why? 
for because in the image of God he made man. After the fall, man's being created in the image of God is the ground upon which his life has dignity and worth and thus is protected by the threat of death. So this distinguishes even fallen men from the animals. You can kill the animals for clothes. You can harvest them for resources. You can domesticate them to serve God's interests and to benefit mankind. But if you kill a man, you've got to die because you've attacked the very image of God. So the image of God remains. And we see it again in James 3.9. James expresses the incongruity of using our tongues to praise God on the one hand and then to curse men on the other hand who, James says, have been made in the likeness of God. Don't treat people this way. Don't bless God and then curse his image. The men James is speaking about obviously exist after the fall, And so we must conclude that even after the fall, man retains the image of God in some sense. And just a footnote, whereas James 9.6 uses Selem, or sorry, Genesis 9.6 uses Selem, which the Septuagint translates Akon, James 3.9 uses homoiesis, which is the Septuagint translation of Demuth. So we have both terms, image and likeness, referring to man even after the fall. So, though sin has distorted the image of God such that the Christian life is spoken of as the progressive restoration of that image, Romans 8, 29 and 30, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Colossians 3, 10, nevertheless, it has not been totally obliterated or destroyed. We are not what we ought to be, but we do remain human, and thus we remain image bearers. In what sense, you ask? Well, Romans 1.20 does speak of a theoretical knowledge of God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. But they do have a genuine knowledge of God as an image bearer. That's more than can be said of an animal or a plant or a mountain. Man also has a conscience. Romans 2.15, even unbelievers have consciences. They might try to silence their conscience. They might even sear their conscience by repeated offense. But unbelievers do retain this system in their heart that reproaches them for behavior that violates the law written on the heart and which approves of behavior when he walks consistently with that law. There's a general kindness that even unbelievers show toward others. Matthew 7:11 says, "If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, so also will God bless those who are his." So Jesus acknowledges that even evil men can give good gifts. This shows that the image of God is not totally destroyed. Now, of course, that doesn't please God in the sense that he's sitting there taking delight in an unbeliever's works. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. But if the image was entirely obliterated, there wouldn't be anything to call even our righteous deeds or good gifts. They're good on a horizontal level, even if they earn no merit with God at all. And similarly, there are also what some call shadows of virtue. 2 Timothy 3.5 speaks of those holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. Well, to whatever form of godliness they hold, hold to, that's a good thing. 
Even though fallen man is inwardly corrupt and worthy of no reward from God, if someone outwardly conforms to those external requirements of the law of God, there's evidence of restraint of sin, which speaks to not having totally lost the image. There's some reflection of godlikeness because the image remains. And so you see in 1 Corinthians 5.1, for example, it talks about sins not even named among the Gentiles. There are certain groups of Gentiles that won't sin so grossly as what was going on in the Corinthian church. How is that possible? The image of God remains. So the point is that there is some dignity that remains there. There is some vestigial reflection of God in the man who was patterned after God in his creation. And so all people, even in their fallen state, are to be treated with dignity and kindness. They they have inherent value as image bearers of God. Number seven, there is the realized image, which is to say the perfected image, who is Christ. Scripture identifies the God-man, Jesus Christ, as the perfect image of God. Because of our sin, humanity has marred the image of God in us. And in order to restore us to a relationship with him, the Father sent his own Son to be a perfect representative of both God himself and of humanity. And so 2 Corinthians 4.4 speaks of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, acone, of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Christ makes the invisible God visible, which is precisely what Adam was tasked with doing as his vice regent and failed to do. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He is the image of God in in its perfection, such that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, 9. In the ways in which men and women fail to function as the image of God, falling short in all three of those primary relationships, God, others, and creation, Jesus has perfectly succeeded. He perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thus he related to God rightly. He perfectly loved his neighbor as himself and thus related to fellow humans rightly. And he demonstrated his righteous dominion over nature by quieting storm, by walking on water, by healing disease, and thus he related to creation rightly. He is therefore the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, who succeeds precisely where Adam fails and where you and I all fail in the likeness of Adam, and imputes then to this new race under his headship the righteousness that God demands. Eighth, there is the renewed image. The renewed image. This speaks of those of us who have been saved and who are in the process of being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that believers uh, behold the glory of Christ and are thereby being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Colossians 3.10 again, we've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. In whatever ways that we make progress in holiness, we are conformed to the image of Christ who is the image of God. 
And thus that moral aspect that was lost is progressively renewed all the way until, number nine, the image is restored, restored. And that restored image comes to fruition ultimately in our complete conformity to Christ's likeness in glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 speaks of our resurrection and says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is the earthy man, Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that is the heavenly man, Christ. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, I should say homoiosis, sorry, because we will be like him just as, because we'll see him rather, just as he is. Our beholding Christ is totally proportional to our being like Christ. Here, imperfectly in sanctification by degrees, then perfectly in glorification in consummation. And I love this comment from Beaky and Smalley. Just as Christ is greater than Adam, so our image bearing in Christ will be more glorious than Adam's. This life not only will lift Christians above their present condition in this fallen world, but will exalt them higher than Adam ever stood in paradise. For the first man was earthly, but the second man is heavenly. Now, views on the precise nature of the image of God tend to fall into three broad camps, the substantive or structural views, the relational views, and the functional views. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just to briefly familiarize you with the terms, the substantive view holds that the image of God is some characteristic or quality that makes up the substance, structure, or constitution of man in what he is. Some in this camp have said that it's the ability to walk upright, although that's a minority position and a bit fanciful. Uh, Much more common is the proposal that the image of God is man's ability to reason, his capacity for memory, or his ability to make choices and moral judgments as a reflection of God's own personhood and rationality and wisdom and goodness. Second, the relational view teaches that God is triune, since God is triune and thus is eternally in relationship among the persons of the Trinity, man's experience of relationships both with God and man uniquely displays the image of God. And here, the image is not what man is or even what man possesses, but something man experiences. And then third, the functional view holds that the image of God is something humans do. And that function is typically identified as ruling or exercising dominion over creation, which is Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and Psalm 8 emphasize. And that centers the image more in what man does than what he experiences or what he is. But the best approach, I think, as we've seen, is to view the image of God in a holistic manner, which embraces all of these things that we've discussed, the nine R's we've just worked through. We don't want to be reductionistic and say that any one of those components entirely or exhaustively defines the image to the exclusion of any other component. So, for example, if the image of God is strictly relational, would that mean that human beings who don't engage in relationships, people like hermits or people who can't engage in relationships like the unborn or the severely mentally handicapped, are not image bearers? But surely they are. And their being image bearers is the ground of our advocacy for their right to life. It is in that capacity for relationships, not the relationships themselves, that the image consists. 
With the functional view, there's no question that man's ruling and exercising dominion over creation is part of what it means to function as God's image. But it's best to see exercising dominion as a consequence of being God's image, not the image itself. Yes, humans were created to function in certain ways, but they can't function in those ways unless they've been endowed with the structural capacities that enabled them to do so. We can't separate nature from activity. We can't separate ontology from function. We can't separate being from act. These things are not interchangeable. They are inextricable, though. And besides, if the image is entirely functional then what meaning can it have if mankind or a particular human being fails to perform that function? In other words, is man still God's image if he fails to act like it? And that question has serious implications for human dignity, especially for those without fitness to rule. So we ought to say, we ought not to say that the image is moral to the exclusion of the relational or structural to the exclusion of the functional. Man himself is the image of God. His whole nature and proper activity is integral to understanding his identity as the image. And we've mentioned some along the way, but I want to take one last moment to summarize a handful of implications of the doctrine of the image of God. First, that man is created in the image of God is the basis for his uniqueness and dignity. No other creature is said to be created in the image and likeness of God. This gives to humans a special place of dignity and responsibility that is not shared by other created beings. As we mentioned a couple of times, we don't see strict penalties assigned to the killing of an animal, especially if they're used for the worship of God, for food, or for the benefit of others. But we do see the death penalty prescribed for murdering a human being. Not only does this show that capital punishment is explicitly biblical, but it demonstrates that people are not animals. People are not animals. Animals are valuable to God. They are. But people are more valuable. Jesus tells his hearers in Matthew 6, 26, that they are worth much more than the birds of the air. He says in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, that the disciples are more valuable than many sparrows. And in Matthew 12, 12, speaking of healing a man on the Sabbath and how even the Pharisees would rescue a sheep who had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, Jesus says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? And so there is a dignity that is afforded to man precisely because he is an image bearer. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people. Each human being is owed an appropriate honor for no other reason than that he is the image of God. This has implications for the way that we treat the poor. Proverbs 14.31, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. But he who is gracious to the needy honors him, that is, his maker. So if you oppress the poor, you taunt the God who made him. If you're gracious to him, you honor the God who made him, in whose image he was made. Surely that has implications for the poorest of the poor, the precious little babies inside the wombs of their mothers who have no voice of their own to raise in their defense no capability to protest that they are not merely clumps of cells, but are living human beings who bear the image of their maker. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 
says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the, the afflicted and needy. And again, there are no more unfortunate, afflicted, or needy persons on the planet than those tiny image bearers whom it's legal to rip apart limb from limb. In Exodus 21, 22 to 25, we see the protection that the image of God affords even to the unborn. It says, if men struggle with each other and strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely, literally, so that her children come out, yet there is no injury, and I ask injury to whom? Surely, yes, no injury to the pregnant woman, but what is the nearest antecedent to the term no injury or no harm done? It is the children who come out prematurely. And so if there's any injury either to the mother or to the children, that man shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, which I think consistency demands has the same reference uh, as the first occurrence of the term injury, namely the mother or the children, so if there's any further injury to the mother or the child, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. What's significant about this is that both the mother and the child in the womb are given equal protection under the Mosaic law. Elsewhere in the law, accidental killings did not require life for life capital punishment. If there was an accidental killing, the manslayer could go to the cities of refuge so that he's not killed by family members seeking vengeance before he had a proper trial. Numbers 35, verses 9 to 15, verses 22 to 29. But in this scenario, even if there is unintentional harm done to the mother or the child, the law still requires life for life. That means that the law of God recognizes that the unborn baby is an image bearer of God and so receives the protection of Genesis 9-6's death penalty for any who take a baby's life. But it also means, as Wayne Grudem says, that, quote, God established for Israel a law of code that placed a higher value on protecting the, the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child than the life of anyone else in Israelite society. And that is consistent with righteousness, isn't it? The most vulnerable, the most dependent, the most defenseless ones are afforded greater protection. So listen, the abortion issue has nothing to do with women's rights. Nothing. It has nothing to do with choice. It has nothing to do with men trying to control women. It has everything to do with the image of God. Christians are against the murder of defenseless children because they are image bearers. Because God's image is to be honored among men and women. And anyone who sheds the blood of those tiny image bearers deserves to have his or her blood shed as a result, according to Genesis 9-6. And of course, we could say all the same things about euthanasia. Just because a human being is so old or so infirm that he is no longer considered to be useful to society, 
or even because he's a drain on his family or because it might seem more merciful to relieve his suffering by putting him out of his misery, the doctrine of the image of God simply does not allow us to put him to death. Christians oppose euthanasia because these dear people are yet image bearers of Almighty God, and so their lives have inherent worth and value. To shed innocent blood is murder. It is one of the six things the Lord says He hates listed in Proverbs 6, and it's worthy, again, of the very capital punishment that God prescribes in Genesis 9-6. Aside from uniqueness and dignity, a second implication from the scriptures that we've examined today is that all human beings are image bearers, and that that therefore means that all human beings are created equal before God. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Men and women are equal image bearers of God and therefore have equal inherent worth and dignity. Now, we understand from Scripture that men and women are given different roles to fulfill, both in the home and in the church, but that doesn't mean that there is any essential superiority or inferiority among them. And this means that any sort of sexism, whether chauvinism or feminism, is an attack on the image of God. Any notion of the domination or abuse or subjugation of women by men or men by women is a violation of this doctrine of Scripture. So also, between ethnicities, Acts 17.26 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth which means that every ethnicity equally bears God's image. Any sort of ethnic prejudice or racial partiality is an attack upon the image of God. Remember how James reasons? We can't praise God with our tongue and then with that same tongue curse people made in the image of God? You see how he's reasoning? The imago Dei creates obligations, ethical obligations for how we treat one another. And so any ethnic partiality is strictly forbidden by Scripture. As I said last week in the gym, we all have the same daddy. Our unity is, as image bearers of God overcomes any enmity that has been created by focusing too exclusively on our diversity. And so you are to view yourselves and others not first as black, white, Asian or Hispanic, not first as European or Latino or African. You are to view yourself and others first as human, as an image bearer of the one and true and living God. And any person, organization, pundit, news anchor, whoever, politician who, in, who uh, attempts to convince you to see yourself or others with primary reference to to those other things is acting against the doctrine of the image of God. And there are even Christian teachers who were saying now that they need to view themselves first as whatever color or ethnicity they are, Christian. First I'm white, then I'm Christian. First I'm black, then I'm Christian. That is an abomination. 
That is an anthropological heresy because man, as the image of God, is united in his sameness to one another before he glorifies God in his variety, in his, in his diversity. Third, there is both the rule. I have listed stewardship, but you could, you could write rule and stewardship. There is both the rule and the stewardship of creation. The rule and the stewardship of creation. Beaky and Smalley write, the right to engage in agriculture and industry arises directly from the dominion of God's image bearers over the world. When human beings breed animals, care for them in controlled environments, put them to work in service to humanity, and kill them to harvest their bodies for food, medicine, and other products, they are not transgressing against the oneness of all life. They are exercising God-given authority over God's earth. We are to rule the earth. And so we are not to idolize either the creation nor the creatures of the creation. We do not treat animals like people. Dear people, I know you love your pets, but your dogs and your cats are not your children. They are not your fur babies. They are wonderful and precious companions, but do not dishonor the image of God by blurring the distinction between humans and animals. Love your pets! But don't put them in the place of the human beings in your family. Or if you have no blood family, don't put them in the place of the human beings in the family of God, who is designed to fill the void of those relationships that you long for. We don't idolize the creatures of creation. Similarly, we don't idolize the creation itself. This planet has been given by God to his image bearers with the intent that we use it. God never intended this present creation in its present order to be eternal. And so we ought not to be overly concerned with trying to save the planet or take care of Mother Earth, the latter of which is an entirely pagan notion. There's no such thing as Mother Earth. I like what one man said, referencing the passage Josiah preached on this morning, Isaiah 66, 1, your Mother Earth is my father's footstool. And yet, at the same time, we don't abuse the creation. I didn't give you the end of that quote. Sorry about that. We don't abuse the creation. We don't treat it disdainfully or wastefully. We are not reckless or exploitative. We are stewards. And so what, ought, what kind of stewards ought we to be? 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Luke 12, 42. We need to be faithful and sensible stewards rather than faithless and careless ones. And so just because, oh, it's all, we, we don't have this attitude of, ah, oh, it's all going to burn anyway. Yes, it will actually burn. And the purification of that fire will reveal a, a new creation purged from sin in which we will walk in and live in as servants of the king, perfectly renewed to his image on the new earth for eternity. Praise God. But we don't, that doesn't make us escapist, it doesn't make us negligent, it doesn't make us exploitative, it doesn't make us careless. We can't save the planet, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be good stewards of it. You have to get those priorities in balance. So no, we don't have to, you know, all run out and get electric vehicles and stop all, you know, all these sorts of things. We need to use the environment. 
to the advantage of societies that would lift up the word of God and exalt uh, the freedom of movements of the people of the gospel, right? But we aren't to be exploiting. I've said it a couple times. Move on, Mike. Finally, (laughs) the image of God is the basis for accountability to God. Longtime professor of theology at the Master's Seminary, Dr. Michael Vlock, Uh, puts it this way. He said, creation in the image of God means we belong to God. All humans cannot escape the fact that being made in the image of God means that they are all responsible and accountable to God. God is worthy of devotion, love, loyalty, and service. And the point is, the God in whose image you were made will be the God you one day stand before and to give an account for your life. And that means you are not free to order your life in the way you see fit. You are not free to forge your own identity. You are what God says you are, and you must conduct yourself in the way that God says you must conduct yourself. You may not rebel against the created order of God by identifying as a different gender. When God has made you male and female in his image, God designed to receive glory from your life as his creature, as the male or female that he created you. Do you understand that there's only you can glorify God the way that God has intended to receive glory from you? And when you say, well, God, you have created my soul male, but my body female, and so I've got to bring the other one in line with the other, you are acting against God's creative wisdom, you're impugning his wisdom, and you are attacking the image of God in you. You're saying, I create male and female, in my image. And you're stealing the glory that God means to reserve only for himself. But see it as a wonderful gift that God made you a woman or God made you a man because he means to receive glory from you in that body, in that mind, in your distinct masculinity and femininity. And there's beauty in that, unlike the world that'll tell you there's only glory in perfect sameness in the guise of equality, which is no such thing at all. Man, I have so many places that my mind wants to go, but (laughs) shut up and finish. You You may not rebel against the created order of God by pursuing romantic and sexual relationships with members of the same sex. He created men and women to complement one another, to image forth the unity and the diversity of the Godhead. Just as there is unity of essence and diversity of person in the Trinity, so also is there to be a unity of humanity and diversity of gender in the marriage relationship. Would you believe that's what I was going to say? I forgot that I wrote that. So it's good that I thought to say the thing that I actually wrote and said right afterwards. The the way that it would be a Trinitarian heresy to suggest that the diversity of persons in the Trinity is modalism and therefore uh, an abominable heresy that undoes the nature of God, so also would it be an anthropological heresy to say, I'm to find only unity in my romantic relationships, in my sexual relationships. God created man in his own image, male and female he created them, brought them into the man, 
And therefore, you glorify God as his image, a God in a unity of essence and diversity of person, when you unite a unity of essence in humanity, equal humans, in a diversity of genders. We're obviously not the Trinity. The the persons of the Trinity are not, you know, married to one another and things like that. But there's something to be represented in this unity and diversity. When you make everything unity... Two men or two women, you you uh, you mark over, you blot out the glory of that design that was intended for you to glorify God as His image. And so, your bearing the image of another speaks to your accountability to that other. And if you appear before the God in whose image you're made, in the nakedness of your own righteousness apart from being restored to the image of God by being conformed to the image of Christ, his son, the perfect image of God, then you will suffer eternal judgment. Being created in the image of God, but having fallen and marred the image of God is reason to seek restoration to that image through faith alone in Christ alone, and then to walk in conformity to Christ's likeness. But Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, the perfect image of God, the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, he has come and lived the life that all image bearers were commanded to live but failed to live. And he has died on the cross the death that each one of us deserved because of our sins. And he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that we might put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us. And so it falls to us to repent of our sins, to repent of the ways that we have marred the image of God in us and have lived inconsistently with our identity as his image bearers and to trust in Christ, the perfect image of God, to restore us to him. And it falls to us not only to believe that gospel, but to proclaim that very gospel to all the image bearers with whom we come in contact who stand yet in rebellion to him. May we be found faithful witnesses to the truth of God in this crooked and perverse generation, confronting the lies of militant secularism with the truth of Scripture, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, you're not here just to lament the craziness of the current culture. You're here to withstand that. Not because we're to take over society for Jesus and create a Christian nation, but because we are the prophetic voice that cries against the breaking of the law of God in any generation that God has placed us in. And so if this is where the secularist society attacks truth, that is by saying man is not a creature and man is not the image of God, and therefore all of these implications that you've put on us do not need to bind us, and so we can do whatever the heck we want with whomever the heck we want, right? If that's what their credo is, then the church of God, if we're tasked with destroying those speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the truth, we are to go into that culture and to faithfully witness to the truth, to confront those, um, call them them violence, acts of violence against the truth with, with the sword of the Spirit, and to testify to the gospel that 
overcomes that law-breaking, that overcomes that sin and the penalty of sin, death, so that men and women can be renewed to the image of the one who created them. That is our task. Let us be faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you have given us the word of God, the scriptures, that within our hands we hold perfection. We hold the very mind of God. And and we see how when we, we mine it just a little bit, how rich its treasures are, how much it speaks to every aspect of our lives, how, how fruitful and, and potent its applications and implications are for the way that we live, especially in this present moment. And I just pray that you would make this people a wise and courageous and faithful people to know the truth, to love the truth, and then to go and practice the truth even in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation in which you mean to save many There are yet 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have many people in this city. You're not slow as some count slowness. You're patient so that everyone whom you have marked out from before the foundation of the world will come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth by the message that we preach, both the law and the gospel. And so I pray that you would make us faithful, not only today, not only next year, But in the next generation of Grace Church, make us faithful that we would be a beacon of light in Babylon, where we are now, and that you would use this place as you have used it for decades to come as a means by which you bring glory to yourself in the salvation and transformation of sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.